0: This is The Sidebar for the week of March 31, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. C-SPAN's The Sidebar goes beyond the headlines of the stories shaping the conversation in Washington and across the country with interviews that provide background and context to the issues and events dominating the news cycle with the Senate set to vote on the nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. Our guest this week is Don Ritchie. He is historian emeritus for the U.S. Senate. We talked with him about the Senate filibuster rules and how the threat of the so-called nuclear option has been used by
1: both parties. The rules of the Senate have always given more muscle to the minority, and that's been the issue that uh, the nuclear option has tried to To consider, Uh, and you know, it is interesting that uh, people who senators who have been, you know, very outspoken on these issues, all of a sudden, are on the other side of the issue because they're now in the majority or they're now in the minority.
0: Don Ritchie, Historian Emeritus for the United States Senate. Thank you very much for being with us here on our C-SPIN radio studios. My pleasure. Let's talk about the Senate as an institution. Is it working the way the framers intended it to?
1: Well, I tell people that if the Senate seems cumbersome and slow and frustrating, it's because it was designed to be cumbersome and slow and frustrating. Uh, That's another way of saying it's designed to be deliberative. If you wanted a very efficient, fast system, parliamentary system, you'd essentially just have the House of Representatives. To add the Senate onto that means there's going to be second thoughts to everything, and there's going to be different ways of looking at things. And the Senate is a very different body, has been from day one uh, from the House of Representatives. The House is apportioned by population. The Senate, all states are equal. So in the House, a majority of the population is reflected in a majority of the members of the House. Uh, In the Senate, uh, a majority of the members of the Senate often reflect a tiny minority of the population of the United States. Half the population of the United States lives in 10 states, and they have 20 senators. The other half lives in 40 states, and they have 80 senators. So the Senate is not a majoritarian body. It's not a body that works by majority rule the way the House of Representatives does. And therefore, uh, from the very beginning, it has operated in a different manner than the House.
0: Alexander Hamilton is more than just a a founding father now. He's a hit Broadway show that people continue to talk about. But what was he thinking? What were the framers thinking when they established the Senate?
1: Well, there were some who wanted us to recreate the British system of government with a strong executive who would be sort of like a king and a parliament, uh, essentially. And so Alexander Hamilton at the Constitutional Convention proposed that U.S. senators should serve for life at no salary, and they would therefore be a House of Lords, essentially. Uh, He was voted down on those proposals. Uh, But uh, you can see what they were thinking. They were recreating, essentially, a parliamentary system. That's what they were used to. Under the, as British colonies, but they just rebelled against uh, the Britain, both the king and the parliament, and they didn't want to recreate parliament. In fact, if you read the constitutional debates, most of the time when they talk about the British parliament, it's to list it as a bad example. They wanted to do something different. And, uh, uh, and Hamilton, I think, in that case, was thinking about the, the parliament as a model.
0: We're asking about this, of course,
1: because so many issues
0: now before the Senate, the intelligence issues in Russia, the nuclear option, and the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. I want to get to those issues. But who came up with the analogy of the saucer and the hot cup of tea?
1: (laughs) Well, we in the historical office were always trying to track that back. We got back as far as the 1870s when a French professor wrote to James Garfield, later the president of the United States, uh, and included this story about Thomas Jefferson, who'd been minister to France during the constitutional debate, going back, sitting down, talking to George Washington and saying, why in the world did you create a U.S. Senate? Uh, that, why not just have a, a Democratic House of Representatives, a, a body that would reflect the people's will? And supposedly Washington said to Jefferson, well, why did you pour your coffee into your saucer? And Jefferson said to cool it. And uh, Washington said, precisely, that's why we created the Senate, to cool it. Now, we don't know if Washington and Jefferson really said that. Uh, it's quite possible this French professor heard it through Jefferson, who had a lot of French connections. But the French professor was also trying at that time to create a French Senate. And he may have been stretching the truth a little bit too, uh, uh, with that story. But in any case, apocryphal or not it actually does reflect what the role of the Senate is, and that is to cool it to uh, where when the authors of the Constitution were afraid that in a pure democracy, that public opinion would switch back and forth uh, and that uh, would blow in the wind, essentially. And they wanted uh, a necessary fence, as James Madison called it, something to hold back. And so in the House, every single member of the House The greenest freshman, up to the speaker, runs for election every two years. So if the public's unhappy, they can change everybody in the House. In the Senate, only one-third of the senators run every two two years, so it's a six-year term. So that when the House can completely change and completely change its rules, two-thirds of the Senate are continuing on. So the Senate is considered a continuing body. And therefore, it has not changed its rules very much. And it has slowed things down and been a bit more deliberative in its nature, which I think is, again, that it's part of its design. So, you've been following
0: what's been happening with the House Intelligence Committee and now the Senate Intelligence Committee. Are the events of this past week emblematic of what the founders
1: intended? Yes, I think that you see in the House, because it is a majority driven body, There's very little need to or desire to cooperate with the minority. And that doesn't make any difference which party happens to be in the majority of the minority. The majority operates on its own and rarely even talks to the minority. So you get situations like you have on the House Intelligence Committee where the chairman and the ranking Democrat completely disagree about the issues and don't seem to be working together. The Senate uh, has always fostered more bipartisan compromise. Uh, The Senate rules have always given more muscle to the minority. It's very hard for the majority to act completely on its own. Almost always the majority has to find some support among the minority, and that encourages people to sit down and talk to each other and come to some sort of meeting of the minds. There's not going to be any progress at all unless there's some cooperation in fact you know the senate does a huge amount of its business by unanimous consent and that means all 100 senators have to agree or at least agree not to disagree on a particular issue from a little thing like well oh, i want to put my whole speech in the record even though i only read a few pages from it well you know without objection so ordered sometimes it's we want to pass the bill uh, but uh, we limit the debate to three hours and three amendments without objection so ordered. Sometimes the whole bill passes because no one has an objection and the committee has worked it out. Uh, so unanimous consent is an indication that the Senate, despite the polarized politics of the day, can actually get things done with widespread agreement. And so you, it, it's not surprising that the the chairman and the ranking minority member of the Senate Intelligence Committee are working together more closely than the in the House. And, uh, and that's why a lot of the most prominent investigations in American history have often taken place in the Senate as opposed to the House. Don Ritchie,
0: next to you, the late Senator Robert C. Byrd probably knew more about the Senate and its rules than anyone else who served over the years. First of all, why did he become such an expert? You
1: knew him well. Senator Byrd studied the history of the Senate constantly. Senator Byrd was one of the very few U.S. senators without a college degree. He had worked his way up uh, in life. He didn't have the time to, to get a college degree. When he got to the Senate, he thought a law degree would be useful, and he persuaded American University to recognize his service in Congress as the equivalent of a college degree. And then he went to law school and legitimately got his law degree in 1963, arranged for President Kennedy to come to award him the degree at the ceremony. Uh, But because he never had that kind of formal education that others had, he never stopped learning, he never stopped reading. He was curious about the Senate, and he discovered that there was power in knowing the history of the institution because the Senate does the largest part of its business by precedent, uh, and precedent essentially is history. Uh, And so uh, if you know why they set these precedents, you can understand how to apply the precedents yourself. And he became very influential in the debates of the Senate, even before he became leader, because he knew the rules and he knew the precedents so well and he knew the history. And then when he became the uh, leader of the Democratic Party, In 1980, he began delivering history speeches on the floor of the Senate. He delivered over 100 uh, speeches, usually late on Friday afternoons as things were quieting down. He would stand up for an hour and talk about some aspect of the history of the U.S. Senate. And those were eventually compiled into a multi-volume history, the Senate 1789-1989 for the, the Congressional Bicentennial in 1989.
0: And Brian Lamb sat down with him in 1989. Here's an excerpt from that C-SPAN interview.
1: It kind of makes one laugh when people get the idea that because we have some passionate arguments and considerable bitterness over a nomination, that the Senate will never be the same again. You know that this If one reads that book there, one will see that the Senate has been here a long time, 200 years, and its roots go far deeper than
0: 1789. Senator Robert C. Byrd, back in 1989, Don Ritchie,
1: your thoughts? Oh yes, he's he's uh, saying it's not just the Constitution uh, that, uh, but it's also the whole history of the British Parliament that uh, influenced what happens in Congress. Uh, the the rules of the Senate and the House in that were written for the very first Congress. Were really drawn on the experiences of the British Parliament, and we still have influences of English common law in our legal system. So Senator Byrd not only studied the uh, American Senate, but he studied the British Parliament, and then he went back and studied the Roman Senate. He actually wrote a little book about the Roman Senate, uh, and he argued uh, very vociferously that the Roman Senate began to fail uh, when it gave up the power of the purse. And he vigorously defended the congressional appropriations process and any attempts by presidents, even from his own party, to reduce uh, that uh, he opposed uh, very greatly. So he was uh, very much against the line-item veto, which Congress passed in the 1990s and which President Bill Clinton actually invoked, uh, but which the Supreme Court eventually ruled unconstitutional.
0: Let me apply the words of Senator Byrd and talk about the nomination of Neil Gorsuch. As you well know, with a year left in President Obama's presidency, he puts forth Merrick Garland as his choice to replace Antonin Scalia. Senator Mitch McConnell did not even hold a confirmation hearing for Merrick Garland. And we're seeing that bitterness play out with the the Neil Gorsuch nomination. Is there precedence?
1: Well, every time there was a Supreme Court nomination that was controversial and it might be defeated we would get calls in the Senate Historical Office from members of the press saying, is there any precedent for this? And I would say, well, uh, you know, George Washington had one of his nomination, nominations for the Supreme Court turned down, and that was for Chief Justice. In the very first presidency, you know, early on, uh, the, 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 the Senate has always looked at the Supreme Court differently than other nominations. For instance, cabinet nominations there have been hundreds and hundreds of cabinet nominations, a very small percentage, maybe about 5% have been rejected or withdrawn. And that's partly because rarely does a cabinet nominee survive an entire presidential term. They come and they go pretty fast. If they, they turn out to be inappropriate, the president will get rid of them or Congress can you know, can threaten them, impeach them or censure them or something like that. Uh, and so presidents usually get the, the cabinet and the appointees that they want. But a Supreme Court position is a lifetime position, and it's an independent branch of government. And so from the very beginning, the Senate has treated those nominations differently. And over time, about a third of all of the Supreme Court nominations have been rejected or withdrawn. That's a hefty sum, and that uh, that, that means that pre- pretty much everyone is going to be a debate. Uh, we, we've gotten uh, a bit more partisan. Uh, uh, we've had filibusters relating to... Uh, Supreme Court nominees going back to 1968 when there was an opposition to Abe Fortas becoming chief justice. And so it was a filibuster to prevent uh, that nomination from taking place in the last few months of President Lyndon Johnson's term. Uh, The Republicans led that opposition. When President Nixon came in, uh, his first nominee was a man named uh, Clement Hainsworth. And uh, the Democrats' sort of looked over his finances as, as uh, rigorously as the Republicans had looked over Abe Fortas's and Clement Hainsworth was also turned down. President Nixon then nominated another person, Harold Carswell, uh, and uh, he was even less qualified. He was also rejected. Eventually, uh, President Nixon's nominee of Harry uh, Blackman uh, uh, did uh, get uh, confirmed. And so... Um, right away you get this back and forth when one party acts, the other party feels that they need to uh, show some uh, some spine and stand up to the next party's nominee. So uh, in 1987, when uh, President Reagan nominated uh, uh, Robert Bork, and Democrats led by Edward Kennedy led a, a vigorous debate against Bork, and Bork was defeated in a vote in the Senate. Uh, well, then when The Democrats came back into power. The Republicans sort of felt that they needed to scrutinize nominees as rigorously as the Democrats had done that. And so each party sort of feels like there's a little bit of revenge. And in this case, uh, there are a lot of senators who are very unhappy about the fact that that there were no nomination hearings even, uh, no vote uh, at all, no chance for Merrick Garland. Uh, So that may be playing out in the current debate.
0: Let's talk about the filibuster and the 60-vote threshold. Why 60?
1: Well, I tell people that that was the reform. It used to be worse. In fact, uh, for most of the uh, 19th century, there was no way to uh, to cut off a debate in the Senate. Uh, Once you started to filibuster, as long as you could continue the filibuster, uh, there was no place to, to stop. In 1917, Uh, as we approached uh, entering the First World War, there was a filibuster over a bill to arm merchant ships. That means uh, uh, the U.S. merchant ships would at least be able to defend themselves against German U-boats, and that was filibustered. And President Wilson was furious about that, but so was American public opinion, uh, which really turned against the Senate on this issue. And so when the next Congress convened, the first order of business was to write the first filibuster rule. And they did, and they created a rule that said two-thirds of the Senate. So in other words, 67 of the 100 senators would be needed to cut off a filibuster. Uh, and that's because the Constitution sets two-thirds as a supermajority for ratifying treaties and for um, in, in, uh, removing an uh, impeached officer from uh, from office. Uh, From for constitutional amendments. Uh, So the number of cases overturning presidential vetoes. So they took that two-thirds number. But over the next half century, it was almost impossible for the Senate to get a two-thirds vote to cut off uh, filibusters. And they were almost always Southern senators uh, filibustering against civil rights legislation. So finally, in the 1960s and 70s, there was a movement to try to reverse this. And in 1975, They tried to bring it down to a simple majority, but they realized that wasn't going to work, that there'd be too much uh, antagonism in the Senate. And so uh, they changed it to a 60-vote threshold, the three-fifths of the senators. Now at the time, the majority party, the Democrats, had 61 senators. So you would think that the Republicans would say, no way, 60, That's, that's too low, you can get it easily. But in fact, nobody ever anticipated that all 61 Democrats were ever going to vote the same way on any issue because there were some very conservative Democrats like James Eastland of Mississippi, along with very liberal Democrats. And the Republican Party equally had uh, its liberal and its conservative wings. So everybody assumed that every vote was going to be a mix of the conservatives in both parties voting against the liberals in both parties. And and so the 60-vote seemed a reasonable amount. And quite often, when the majority leader filed for cloture in those days, the minority leader was his co-sponsor. It was not one party versus the other party. It was the leadership against factions in their party, factions on the fringes, on the far right or the far left of their parties that were going to try to oppose what those in the center were trying to do. Uh, What's happened in the last 40 years is that uh, the two parties have grown very internally cohesive. Uh, the Southern senators who used to be all Democrats are now almost all Republicans. The Republican Party has become essentially the conservative party. The Democratic Party has become essentially the liberal party. There are a handful of moderates in both sides. But that means pretty much every vote in the Senate is a party-line vote. And that means you have to have 60 votes in your side to, if you want to be filibuster-proof. And for a very brief time in 2009, the Democrats had 60 votes. That's very rare. Uh, Usually their majority has about 55 votes. Right now they have 52 votes. That means you have to convince a number of members on the other side to vote with you in order to reach that 60-vote threshold.
0: This is a fascinating lesson in the U.S. Senate. I feel like we should give our listeners an exam at the end of our discussion. (laughs) The term "nuclear option" we're going to hear in a moment from Senator John McCain, who again quoted Senator Robert C. Byrd. But who came up with that term?
1: Well, you know, the the two sides call it different things. The side that wants to invoke it refers to it as the constitutional uh, option, meaning that this you know would be in line with the Constitution and you know. Uh, that uh, you you should be able to do this because, in a sense, the Constitution says each House of Congress can write their own rules. It doesn't. The the idea of a filibuster is not in the Constitution. None of the rules of the Senate or the House essentially are in the Constitution other than that two-thirds majority required uh, for those particular votes. The opposite party always calls it the nuclear option uh, with the idea that if you invoke it, it's like a nuclear explosion, you're not quite sure what's going to be left standing when it's gone. And you may destroy the institution as a whole. And so it it's a much more uh, draconian word to call it a nuclear option.
0: A couple of years ago, Senator John McCain on the Senate floor, November 2013. Three months before his death, Robert Byrd wrote this letter. Three months before his death, he said, during my half century of service in various leaderships in the U.S. Senate posts." In the U.S. Senate, including Minority Leader, Majority Leader, Minor- Majority Whip, and now President Pro Tem, I've carefully studied this body's histories, rules, and precedent. Studying those things leads one to an understanding of the constitutional framers' vision for the Senate as an institution and the subsequent development of the Senate rules and precedents to protect that institutional role. This is important, I say to my colleagues. He said, I am sympathetic to frustrations about the Senate's rules, but those frustrations are nothing new. From the Senate floor, November 2013, Senator John McCain and Don Ritchie quoting Senator Robert C. Byrd. So I guess, what's old is new again.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, these are old issues that come back constantly. To uh, and in fact. Uh, the one great thing about the veteran senators, like Senator Byrd and Senator McCain, is they were here when the last uh, fight took place. Uh, so they remember these things. If The junior members often, this is the first time they've encountered it, uh, they're often shocked by how arcane the rules are. They want to change things. And the senior members often stop and say, wait, you know, when we were in the minority, this worked in our favor. You don't want to give this up just because we're in the majority right now. I think the important thing to remember about the whole issue on filibusters and cloture and nuclear option is there is no Republican position on these issues, and there is no Democratic position on these issues. There is a majority party position, and there is a minority party position. And consequently, both parties have been on both sides of this issue, depending on whether they were in the majority or the minority. Uh, that You've had... Uh, Democratic vice presidents like Hubert Humphrey and Republican vice presidents like Nelson Rockefeller who tried to change these rules you've had um, dem- Republican majority leaders like Bill Frist who called for the nuclear option and you've had Democratic majority leaders uh, Harry Reid who actually invoked the nuclear option Harry Reid opposed it when Bill Frist proposed it you know Mitch McConnell was on the on the side of Senator Uh, Frist uh, when when, uh, uh, he proposed the nuclear option, but he was opposed to it when Harry Reid brought it up. And it's not a matter of hypocrisy. It's a a matter of how different the world looks and how different the responsibilities are when you are the majority leader as opposed to being the minority leader. Uh, The majority leader has a mission to get things done, especially if you have a president from your own party and you have an agenda and you feel you've won the election and you want to do this, and you're frustrated when the minority blocks you. The minority uh, wants very uh, desperately not to be steamrolled. They want to be included in the discussion. They don't want to be the minority, like in the House of Representatives, who are essentially bystanders to the events. They really want to be participants in the events. And so, um, the rules of the Senate have always given more muscle to the minority, and that's been the issue that uh, the nuclear option has tried to uh, to consider. Uh, and you know, you, it is interesting that uh, people who senators who have been, you know, very outspoken on these issues, all of a sudden are on the other side of the issue because they're now in the majority or they're now in the minority. Uh, the one senator who realized the contradiction was Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa, and he had been arguing uh, back in the late 80s and the early 90s that because Republicans were using filibusters more often. And he'd been calling for rules changes to prevent filibusters or make them harder. Uh, And then all of a sudden, the Democrats lost the majority in 1994. And so he went to the Democratic conference and said, well, you know, when we were in the majority, we couldn't get this done because the minority opposed us. Now we're the minority. Why don't we accept these proposals that we just made? And his colleagues said, we can't possibly do that. You know, they said that's our only defense against being steamrolled by the majority. So the world just looks entirely different depending on your party's position in the Senate.
0: Well, let me take that one step further. You talked about the differences in terms of the institution of the House and the Senate. And in talking with former House members who are elected to the U.S. Senate, Democrat or Republican, they say the same thing. Wow, I didn't realize how much power I have in the Senate.
1: Yes, uh, about half of the U.S. Senate is made up of former uh, representatives. Absolutely nobody in the House of Representatives is, is a former senator right now. Uh, it's interesting the way that trend has has gone, and that uh, the, oh, the two bodies are constitutionally equal. Although the Senate is a little bit more equal because it has certain advice and consent rules that uh, that the House doesn't have. The difference, the real difference that makes those individual senators so powerful, is the fact that the Senate does so much of its business by unanimous consent. And that means that you can be a greenest member of the minority party, somebody who just took the oath of office 10 minutes ago, and they call for unanimous consent, and you say, I object, and you stop everything. Well, you can't do that in the House of Representatives. In the House, it takes decades of seniority uh, to get that. Or you have to be part of a large number, a big incoming freshman class or a big caucus or a big state delegation. It's you, have, you need the numbers in the House of Representatives to have influence. In the Senate, one senator is influential. And of course, that was epitomized in the Hollywood movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where Jefferson Smith, who's a totally green, inexperienced senator, ties up the Senate with a filibuster because he's trying to stop something that he thinks is an outrage. And in fact, uh, senators, all senators, uh, majority or minority party, liberal or conservative, are powerful individuals the minute that they take the oath of office. uh, And that really distinguishes them from representatives.
0: And finally, appropriately enough, you first came to the Senate Historical Office in our bicentennial year, 1976. That's right. Why is this your passion?
1: The history of the Senate? Well, uh, I was a political historian by training. I I had looked at the Congress and its role. I hadn't really studied it uh, as extensively as I studied other things, but I just was interested in the way the American political process worked. And so the opportunity to work as a historian from the Senate was a terrific gift. And the Senate has a wonderful library, and I used to spend a lot of time pulling books off the shelves and reading back into the history, trying to understand why... The Senate operated the way it did, and how it got to that point, and then, of course, while I'm reading in the morning about Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, I could go in the afternoon and sit in the Senate gallery and watch Robert Byrd and and Howard Baker and uh, Daniel Moynihan and Ted Kennedy and uh, you know all these interesting senators debating these issues with Jesse Helms, you know, wide ranges of opinions. And I'd hear echoes of what they were saying from what I'd read that morning of Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and realize the Senate is a continuing body. There are a lot of these issues that keep coming back. And we in the Senate Historical Office kept statistics on just about everything the Senate did. And we, there are patterns in which you see um, uh, how the Senate's operated. You know, Mark Twain uh, once said that the history doesn't repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes. And there is a lot of rhyming in the way things happen in the Senate. Uh, It's almost impossible to do something that's completely unprecedented, because after 200 years, they've done just about everything at some time or another. It's just that most people have forgotten what it was uh, from the next time they get around to dealing with it. And that's what the historians wind up doing uh, in our position. And, uh, And so it was a wonderful opportunity to watch a political institution at work. On that note, Don Ritchie, Historian Emeritus for the U.S. Senate,
0: thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. We enjoyed the conversation. I did too. This has been C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter, and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast player, Every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as iTunes, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Thank you for listening.